You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 76 of the Common Descent Podcast. Welcome back. We are discussing horse evolution. Ooh. Yeah, this has been a popular requested topic, and I've been looking forward to it. Horse evolution is a cool evolutionary topic and a cool event in fossil history. Not only are there lots of cool things to say about fossil horses, but the topic of horse evolution has been in many ways pivotal in our understandings of evolution and interpreting the fossil record and yeah it's a textbook case literally yeah yeah and, it is absolutely <laughs> like literally this is a textbook case so there's a lot to kind of unwrap with this because it has been very influential but our understanding of it has changed significantly compared to when it was made famous to what we know today yeah, it's an interesting one because we've done other episodes where it's the evolution of birds, evolution of yeah. whales, where we're talking about a dramatic transition from one form of familiar living thing to another form of familiar living thing. Horse evolution is interesting because, as you said, it's changed. Our yeah. understanding of it has changed. But also because it's sort of watching how horses came to be. Yes. What horses have been over the course of 50 million years or mm -hmm. so. We're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the history of our understanding of horses. We're going to take a trip through horse time, as we usually do. Once again, it'll be a brief hopscotch through, especially with this one, because there are a lot of fossil horses. It's a big group. So I, there are tons of names. I'll mention a lot of the big ones. I'm sure there are ones that are worth mentioning that won't be. Oh, well. Because they're, they're a well-represented group in the fossil record. And so we're, we'll take a look at what it takes to make a horse. But first, I want to mention who requested this. Lydia, one of our patrons. Thanks, Lydia. Mark, Jonathan, and Kim all asked for us to talk about horse evolution. Good suggestions all yeah. around. So, before we move on further, let's get announcements out of the way, as we like to do. Lydia, our patron, is one of many patrons, and some of those patrons have patroned at the right level for us to shout their name out. So, welcome to the Patreon, Catherine, Klaus, Devin, and Jennifer, Felix, and Kale. Welcome, everybody. Yeah. Thank you, as always, for your support. Our patrons allow get all sorts of goodies mm -hmm. in return for the support that they provide us and allow us to, as we've mentioned before, we haven't said it in a while, but the podcast is self-sufficient. Yes. Thanks to Patreon. Thanks to Patreon. And even further than that, our Patreon funds allow us to do things like go to DragonCon and interact with people face-to-face. -face. Yes. Meet new listeners, meet cool contacts like Trevor and Karen, yep. who we met at this past DragonCon. Go to paleo conferences. Yep, so it's it's a great benefit to us to have Patreon. So thank you all and welcome to our new patrons. The last bit of announcements we have is, as many of you have probably seen on our social medias, we've had the Q&A questionnaire open. It will have, by this recording it hasn't, but by you listening to it, will have closed today. Yeah, unless you're listening to this like 
the morning of release. Yes. It's probably closed. Mm-hmm. So we're, we are wrapping up the Q&A uh, collection process. And we are, or the Q collection process. Yes, and now we it's are, time for the A processing. Now we will A <laughs> these Qs. And soon, so keep an eye out for it, toward the end of this year. Yeah, we will be a, releasing all of our A's. Yes, we will be, we'll be uh, answering all of the things you wanted us to answer. So, so keep an eye out for that. And that's about it for announcements. I think that's all we got. We're good there. Which brings us to the news. News. So every episode... As usual, lots of things as usual. We like to discuss some of the more recent science newses, uh, paleoevolutionary, other interesting things that caught our eye that have been going on to keep us up to date, to keep you up to date. And we share a few every episode. So, David, take it away. I have two newses, as usual. One of them is a much more typical topic, and I'm going to start with that. All right, cool. Dinosaurs specifically dinosaur teeth more specifically how often dinosaurs lost and replaced their teeth Ooh, that's cool spoiler alert they didn't all do it at the same rate <laughs> let's dive in this is research by mike demick my buddy mike from up in new york at all in plus one and we'll link to an article by riley black in smithsonian magazine dinosaurs grew teeth continuously over the course of their lives for the most part, some of them were toothless. Some of them did weird things. But, you know, your T-Rex, your Diplodocus, your Triceratops were growing in teeth, losing teeth, like sharks, like crocs, like m most toothed animals that you're familiar with. Yeah. Mammals are really the weird ones that have... We, we've got these more permanent teeth. We're the, um, the hoarders. We just hold on to them. <laughs> but... The rate at which teeth grow and are replaced in dinosaurs has not been explored very much in certain groups of dinosaurs. This is important because it can tell you a lot about their life cycle. It can tell you about how they're eating. Among theropods especially, these are your two-footed, three-toed, often meat-eating dinosaurs that also include birds. Only three non-bird theropods have ever had their tooth formation and replacement rates looked at. Interesting. So this study went ahead and looked at three more. Two familiar friends from the Jurassic, Allosaurus and Ceratosaurus. Ceratosaurus is the one with the nose horn. Yes. And one uh, younger specimen, well, species, Majungasaurus from Madagascar. Cool. These are all large theropods, right? One ton, 20 feet or more large predators notably one of the things that in riley's article that mike comments on is that one of the reasons he wanted to look at majungasaurus on top of i know that mike has just worked with majungasaurus before <laughs> is that he's noted that in the formations where you find majungasaurus their teeth isolated individual teeth are seem to be unusually abundant oh okay compared to other predatory dinosaurs and animals in the formation so they went ahead and looked at a bunch of different samples majungasaurus in particular they were able to look at 15 toothed elements which means jaw bones with teeth in them and more than 50 isolated teeth and then a bunch more samples from the other two big theropods ct scanned them imaged the layers of the jaw looked at the tooth stacks so if you ever get the chance to look inside the jaw of a dinosaur Crocs do the same thing. Yeah. 
their teeth, I, I think if I remember right, the way that Riley describes it in the article is that they're stacked on top of each other like ice cream cones. Yep, and that's exactly how Crocs, that's, that's actually the exact analogy I use when I would teach people about alligator and croc teeth. So they're ones growing in underneath the one on top of it and so on and yeah, teeth all the way down. Their roots are kind of hollow, so they socket onto each other. They also have growth lines, signs of their formation. So you can estimate how quickly teeth are growing and being replaced. These authors then uh, created models of tooth formation for the different dinosaurs. So they can get a sense and make estimates of these rates. And because they're making models based off of CT data, they can do it without having to cut jaws open. Woohoo! Which is always a plus when you don't have to destroy a, a fossil. I mean, it's, it, it's a nice benefit. What they found was that the two Jurassic predators, Allosaurus and Ceratosaurus, looked like they had replacement rates of about 100 days. So a tooth would be replaced on average every 100 days. Okay. So a couple times a year, yeah. you're going to replace that tooth. Majungasaurus was half that. Wow. Their average listed is 56 days. So right off the bat, we have Majungasaurus is much more rapidly replacing its teeth. Yeah, just machine gunning teeth out. Which is interesting because it is, they, they note, similar to certain herbivorous dinosaurs. Some sauropods, hadrosaurs, uh, horned dinosaurs, ceratopsians, also have replacement rates of that uh, sort of range of estimate. Earlier research by Mike estimated Diplodocus, the famous long-necked sauropod, with uh, replacement rates of averaging 62 days, Okay, right in line with Majungasaurus, and Camarasaurus, another famous sauropod, at 35 days. Wow. Which is just... It's almost monthly. Yeah, that's one of... Every, every new moon... <laughs> yeah. My, the, what That tooth pops out. So this leads, of course, to the question of, what are you doing? And their sort of best running hypothesis here is that it's probably due to high tooth wear. Yes. This is why herbivores are probably replacing their teeth. It's why herbivores today, we see a lot of tooth reinforcement... Hey, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in this episode. <laughs> because, yeah, plants are hard to eat. Yes, they are. Grass is full of grit and, and uh, silica bits. If you're taking things off of trees, you're getting twigs and stuff in them. Like, plants are rough, and you're chewing and you're grinding. And to support this, they point out that there are, in the areas where Majungasaurus is found, there are lots of scrapes and bites on bones that appear to be attributed to Majungasaurus. Oh, it was gnawing. It was getting down to the bone and then getting every little bit. Yeah, maybe it may, maybe it's scraping the meat off the yeah. bone. Uh, they didn't mention if it's cracking bone. Yes. Which it may, maybe, but it's go, it, it, it is unlike other carnivores that avoid biting bone. Yes. Because you don't, you know, I think uh, cheetahs, I think, are an example of a modern carnivore that avoids bone and goes for flesh yeah in contrast to hyenas which crack through bone to get the stuff inside well i feel like dogs could be a very good example where like a dog they may you know lots of dogs aren't trying to eat the bone but if the bone still has stuff on it you know they're going to sit there and like get those molars onto the bone to scrape every little bit off so you could picture them you know just <laughs> corn cobbing 
bones for every scrap of meat. (laughs) (laughs) They also noted that when comparing tooth replacement rates among dinosaurs, they did not find correlations with things like body size. Cool. They did not find specific patterns over time. Like, it wasn't just that they all replaced teeth faster as time went on. It seems to be related to the different groups of dinosaurs. Certain clades, certain families, replace their teeth faster than others. I mean, that makes sense. So it it probably has to do with how are you using your teeth, what are you doing with it. Which That makes complete sense because we see that very much with teeth today of different groups having very similar teeth because they're doing the same stuff with them. Right. And so, you know, teeth respond evolutionarily very quickly to how you're using them. One of my favorite little tidbits that I found uh, nested in the paper is, and I wasn't going to go ahead and, you know, mention (laughs) T-Rex because it's the the popular thing to do, but this is actually really cool. Because when I was reading about Majungasaurus and they're like, oh yeah, Majungasaurus is going after bone. And I thought T-Rex was, is thought to have Mm -hmm. done that, to have had very strong jaws, strong teeth for going after bone. So I did a control F in the, the paper to find if they mentioned Tyrannosaurus. And they mentioned that Tyrannosaurus replaced its teeth unusually slowly. Interesting. And it seems that here you have two different groups. That, um, so Majungasaurus is an abelisaur, mm-hmm. which we talked about in our South America episode. Yes, we did. Actually, 74. And T-Rex is a Tyrannosaurid. So they're suggesting it might be that if both of these animals are going for bone... One of them has gone with the, these teeth are expendable. Yes. So I'm going to damage my teeth, but just replace them a bunch. Whereas Tyrannosaurus went with these teeth are important. So we're going to build them up super robust and strong and hold on to them for a while. Cause they'll, they'll be able to last. Yeah. It's uh Majungasaurus is using replaceable razors. Well, <laughs> T-Rex is using a, a straight razor that you have to keep. <laughs> you know, take <Yeah>. care of. <laughs> That's really cool because those are both valid answers to are you doing something tough? All right, well, then you either need to get a new one really often or it needs to be a really good whatever it is you're using. Yeah. That's cool. Well, since we're doing, um, you know, topics more like in our wheelhouse sure, first, sure, sure. Uh, my first bit of news, I'll do the one that's uh, about Crocs. Croc- like the shoes? Huh. Uh, no, like uh, crocodiles, crocodilians. You mean alligators. <laughs> Both. But this one is focusing on alligators in the research. But it deals with a topic that has been observed in both alligators and crocodiles. Because some of you may have heard that there is evidence for tool use in specifically two species, the mugger crocodile and the American alligator. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing this. Yep. You've probably heard it because I'm sure I've mentioned it. I think we have. <laughs> yeah. I would be shocked. <laughs> I would be disappointed. I would you. be like quite literally flabbergasted if I've never brought that up on the podcast because I bring <laughs> that up as often as I can. So tool use, of course, being an animal. I don't know mm-hmm. of anything non-animal that's thought to use tools. Using an object as a tool to help it perform a task. Yes. And I'm not going to say unheard of, but unobserved, because it's also not being looked for in reptiles. Correct. But there have been instances of alligators and these crocodiles floating sticks on their nose around nesting birds, potentially to lure the birds in as prey. 
Yeah, bird comes down to get a stick for its nest, and the stick... That's not a log. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> under that stick is a mouth. <laughs> you are devoured. <laughs> so that would be the first ever documented case of reptile, reptilian tool use. And one of the very few instances of predators using tools to set traps. Like, so this is a, this is a big deal on multiple fronts. This new research took a closer look at it and seems that it, that might be shakier evidence than it initially seemed. Science in action. Yes. So this is research by Adam Rosenblatt and Alyssa Johnson in Ethology, Ecology, and Evolution. Uh, this is straight from the paper, so there is no article. Yeah, but what we can do, actually, uh, and I'll, I don't know if he's tweeted about it. I, I put this in our news list because I saw Adam tweet about yes. it. So what we might do is just link to his Twitter account. Ooh, good. Yeah, that's a good idea. Because he might have tweeted about it. And if you have questions, you can ask him. Yes, exactly. So the original research, which is Danette's et al. Uh, from 2013, was the one that proposed the tool use. Uh, and this was based on observations of the two species, the mugger crocodile in India and the American alligator here in the U.S., floating those sticks on the nose, what they called a stick displaying behavior. <laughs> and it seemed that they were doing it more frequently when there were nesting birds in their habitat and during the nesting season. You know, so when birds were present and it seemed to increase when the birds were actively making their nests. Now, they, they performed an analysis throughout times, you know, different times of the year to try to see if there was a correlation and... Their initial results said, yes, it looks like it is correlated. It looks like it is a positive, you know, a connection between the two events. This research points out a few, not holes in the research so much as things that might weaken the argument. Right. A few addendums. A few addendums, basically. A couple of of quid pro quos. (laughs) The first one is that this was only at four sites. Okay. That the observations were made. So it was very limited. Low sample. Low, very low sample size. Uh, one site in India for the mugger crocodile, one captive site in Florida, and two natural sites in Louisiana. So one for the mugger, three for the alligators. The other issue is that they only observed a single case of a successful capture of a bird. Okay. And there was no evidence, you know, no hard evidence given that the stick was related to that capture. Right. So of all the observations of the stick displaying, only one correlated with a capture, and there was no definite proof that it was because of the stick. Okay, all right. So there's not any really good evidence that this is a hunting behavior because we haven't seen them hunting with it but one time. Right, an intriguing potential correlation, but not not, not nearly a sure thing. Yes, so... This research took a closer look, not to disprove, but to try to clean up the data some with a more controlled scenario. So they looked at American alligator, so alligator mississippiensis. They went to four captive pond sites, uh, captive populations at four different areas, two with bird rookeries, you know, bird nesting areas present, two without. So they had... There's no reason the two without should be displaying six if it is done because of birds to where that behavior should be plentiful or really useful at least. They, during bird nesting season, added sticks to the ponds 
to provide the material and then observed the frequency that stick display occurred. And what they found is that there was no difference okay. between the four sites. And in fact, one of the no rookery sites had a more frequent stick displaying than the others. So there doesn't seem to be a connection between when they float sticks on their nose and the presence of nesting birds during nesting season, which does not debunk that this behavior is being used this way. This could be something that they do regardless of if a bird's around, because if a bird happens to come by, I want to be ready. Right. But it definitely doesn't support the idea that this is a tool use trap setting hunting behavior. Yeah. It if If it is being useful for that purpose it may be that it's just a habit that the Mm -hmm. gators have as opposed to the more dramatic idea of the gators going oh the birds are here let me go grab some sticks exactly interesting i and we've mentioned this every now and then and the older the podcast gets the more we get to do this is checking in on science yes there was a cool result a few years ago Here's a group of new people who have taken a look at it and gone, okay, here's some caveats. Yes. Here's, uh, we noticed this, and our understanding grows a little bit. And this is a perfect example of, you know, not not directly, because this phrase has its, you know, criticisms uh, or criticizers, uh, but extraordinary claims require extraordinary, you know, evidence. And this is one of those where we had a, what would be an extraordinary claim? Because it would be the first ever instance of reptilian tool use. Right. One of the only instances of a predator using tools to hunt. Yep. Uh, there's not a lot of those. And so that's a big deal. And the evidence was not overwhelming. Right. And that's kind of what this research is showing is that it's not that it's definitely not true, but the initial evidence doesn't seem to hold up to further initial testing. Though the researchers do point out, this also does indicate that captive populations may be poor studies. Right. Because food provisioning, the available of food, also the density of alligators is not consistent to wild populations. Very true. So that both is a note for this study, but also the previous study, because half of the studies there were also captive. So we may have to go outside human care if we're wanting to truly test this. Which is harder. Which is much more (laughs) difficult. And this study, though it is more controlled, is still a low sample size. Still very low, yes. So it it brings the total sample size up Mm -hmm. between both studies. But yeah, I'm sure, surely we have not heard the end of this discussion The one part I've yet to hear a definite answer on, like I've not been able to find it when I've read up on this stuff, is if there have been, if it's been observed of the alligators seeking a stick. Right, right. Or do they just observe them with a stick on their face? Because then that's, there is a potential of that happening randomly, very easily. Or have they actually watched a stick floating and then an alligator diverting course to the stick? Right. Can you put all the sticks on one side of the pond and see if the gators are actually yeah. taking trips over to pick them up? That's what I would be. Are Is there something that they're at least focusing on the stick? Because then there's still something going on. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, whether or not this one turns out to be true... I hope it is, because it's cool. It's cool, yeah. But at the same time, no, science. The truth is always cooler than the not truth. That was part of the reason I wanted to talk, because I'm definitely on the side of tool use. (laughs) But croc information accurately is better than coolie. 
Well, let me take our news in a, now for something completely different. Let's go back to the Ediacaran. Cool. And let's scale down uh, to a discussion about fossil embryos. This is research by Zhongjun Yin et al. in Current Biology, and we'll link to a press release in Sci News. So the Ediacaran episode 31, we talked about in episode 31, is a the per- basically it is the period of time where we see the oldest recognizable animal fossils. Yes. Before the Cambrian explosion, so ancient that we don't know what most of them are, if they are true animals, where they fit on the animal family tree. A really exciting time to study for learning about the early evolution of animals. Mm-hmm. One of the most famous fossil deposits provides the Wang'an biota uh, in the famous Duoshantua formation in China, well known for preserving fossil embryos. That's a cool thing to be known for. Isn't it? Wow. This particular study has taken a closer look at some that might clue us in to early animal-like embryologic development. So we're looking at the early Ediacaran around 609 million years ago, which is extremely old. That is egregiously old. Now, there is always, there's, there's been some controversy over the embryo discoveries at the site in terms of uh, how many of these are actually embryos, how many of them are other sorts of things. In this study, the authors identify a, a, a group of what appear to be truly embryos at various stages of development of a genus Caviasphera, named because they ha- they're a little sphere-shaped, super tiny, like half a millimeter. Wow. Very, very small. And indeed, they don't have the adult version of whatever this is. Okay. Because the embryos fossilize better. That's weird. In a strange turn of events, yeah, the embryos fossilize and the adults don't. That makes me uncomfortable. That's weird. And that weird? Stop it, Ediacra. <laughs> because it's the future, they were able to use X-ray, X-ray microscopy to examine the growth stages through embryology in these ancient embryo structures. And they found some cool stuff. They found evidence. So so this site, one of the reasons that it's so famous is that the preservation is so good. Not only do you get sub-millimeter fossils, if you put it under a, a good enough microscope, you can look at cellular structure. Wow. And indeed, uh, somewhere in my reading, referenced subcellular structure. Wow. So if you remember from biology class, when you learn about embryo formation... It's a bunch of pictures of blobs of cells. Yes. Right? It's a cell, then it's two cells and four cells and 16 cells, and then it's a little blastula. (laughs) That's what they're looking at. They're looking at how are these cells changing over the course of this development. So they see evidence of cell division, of cell migration, and a similar stage to the gastrula, which is an important stage in the development of animal and animal relative embryos. They found that the overall the development looks similar to relatives of animals like the coanoflagellates, mm-hmm. which are relatives of animals, not actually animals, micro microbes that are still around today that are close to animals, but not actually animals, yes. which alternate between single and multi-celled life stages. But that in this, in, in these caviosphera embryo fossils, they found a pattern of cell organization during development 
that is similar to what we see in animals as their tissues and organs develop. Huh. Which, if indeed that is what we're seeing, appears to be the oldest evidence of that sort of embryologic development in the fossil record. Now, the authors point out that this is not necessarily an animal. They, In fact, they, they mentioned that it looks like embryos of some starfish and coral, Ooh. which is cool, but that it might not actually be a true animal. There's not, you know, it could be something just beforehand. But it does seem to indicate that animal-like embryo development, right, that important gastrulation, uh, uh, reorganization pattern of animal embryo development is in the fossil record, if that's what this is, quite a ways before the first definitive animal fossils. Neat. Which could mean, of course, that we're just missing earlier animal fossils, mm-hmm. or that this is a stage that pre... This is a, a, a feature that predates animals by quite some time. I always love when we find key features that go back to basically the very beginning. That makes sense. Conserved features, you know, things that we're, we're seeing across basically all animals needs to go back basically to the beginning. But it's always very uh, enjoyable when you see something. It's like, yeah, it looks basically like what we're seeing today in certain things way back here. Right. 600 million years ago. But it's also interesting that it has maintained, like... I'm less surprised that it showed up that far back and more surprised that it still looks that way. It's recognizable as what it is. Like that we have not updated that significantly, or at least certain animals have not updated that significantly in that time. It's always fun to see what features just hit on something good and stuck that way. Yes. Cool. Yeah, good stuff. We don't talk about... Fossil embryos very much. No, that's really interesting. The phrase fossil embryo is always cool. Yeah. Those are particularly cool. <laughs> well, I would like to talk about a Styracosaurus skull named Hannah. Okay. So, Styracosaurus, one of those ceratopsian dinosaurs, the horned, frilled, herbivorous, beak dinosaurs. Right. One, Not just one of the horned dinosaurs, but hot taken coming, mm-hmm. one of the best horned dinosaurs. It was always my preferred because it's it's you know you have these others that it's like triceratops how many horns you have it's in there my name three all right two above the eyes one on the nose styracosaurus how many horns you have i replaced most of the rest of the stuff with horns (laughs) all right cool so i have i have eye horns and a nose horn and then you know how that triceratops has a frill (laughs) it's horns what my head is the iron throne (laughs) (laughs) yes but what if horns so styracosaurus that just brilliant peacock feather of horns on the head. You've got like Pachyrhinosaurus and Protoceratops walking around and they're like, why well, I don't have any horns, Styracosaurus. This is where they went. <laughs> it's because Styracosaurus got to the horn table <laughs> before they did. When they were passing they're out like, horns. Oh, you're out. Oh, Styracosaurus is just holding all the <laughs> horns. Well, I'm just gonna <laughs> oh, we were supposed to only take a few. Head over to Laramidia. I didn't see that sign. <laughs> so... <laughs> This is a particularly unusual skull that could, if it is typical, or if it is even a potentially typical feature, could really change the way we uh, understand our identification process for these horned dinosaurs. So this is research by Robert Holmes et al. in Cretaceous Research, and the article is by the University of Alberta in SciTech Daily. 
So this skull, very well-preserved skull, was notable because of, as they put it, facial imperfections. Uh, it was weird. It was weird-shaped. Particularly, it was asymmetrical. Huh. It was not. So asymmetrical means you draw a line down the middle and both sides are mirror images. You could fold it in half and the outline would be the same. Most animals are, well, most familiar animals of all vertebrates are bilaterally symmetrical. Yes. Symmetrical down the middle. Yeah, and so we, you, effectively, your left looks exactly like your right. There are little things, like, you know, ears are different, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You, but, only, you should only need 50% of the skeleton to know what the whole rest of the skeleton looks and like. And that's why it's so important for paleontology, is because often when we say we have a complete skeleton, we mean we have at least one of each portion so that we can mirror it on the other side we don't necessarily have a hundred percent this skull is asymmetrical uh in the shape of the horns and it doesn't seem to be due to deformation it seems like they it had different shaped horns on the left and the right huh which means that the way we've been identifying stuff could be incorrect this kind of asymmetry is not uncommon in things with horns. Deer often have notable left and right antlers. They sure do. So they actually, you know, you could denote which one was left and right if this deer keeps growing its antlers the same way. And so something that has different shaped uh, head ornamentation is not unusual today. If this skull is showing a similar kind of uh, left horned, right hornedness, <laughs> and if that is not just one weird individual and that's something that horned dinosaurs could be doing the reason this is such an issue is the researchers said that had they found this skull split in half they would have likely considered them to be two different species yeah left left half is different enough from right half that without context yeah if i had sawed it in half and handed it to two different groups they probably would have both given it a different taxonomic denotion like if you found the two crab claws yes exactly and one was the big Fiddler, off the yeah. male's fiddler crab claw, and the other one was a little dinky one on the other side. Are those the same species? And so this is important because the horns and frills have often been a big part of identifying species of ceratopsians. And if this kind of variation is present, you know, more common than not, or common enough, I guess, then it means that many things that have been called a separate species may just be a slightly wonky horned individual these horns may not be so consistent as we've assumed them to be dinosaurs just can't make anything easy huh nope it's ontogeny yep messing up what we identify as different species episode 33 now you've got now they're asymmetrical which you know on one hand it makes it difficult but also i found this i appreciated this article in many ways because so often when we represent animals, you know, when we reconstruct them with art, when we show them in media, we always draw them symmetrical. Right. Perfect. But if you go to a zoo... When did this become more beautiful yes. than this? If you go to a zoo, animals are wonky all over. Oh, yeah. Like, we're, we're, we're all built weird. Yeah. There's all sorts of weird stuff. I saw a whole uh, study that would took people's faces cut it down into left oh, and right I've seen this. Yeah, and yeah. then mirrored the right with the right and mirrored the left with the left. And they looked like different people. Yeah. Because you don't notice it, but people's faces aren't perfectly symmetrical. And if you do make them symmetrical, they look 
just a little weird. Yeah. Now you're down in that uncanny valley. Yeah, now they look like replicants. <laughs> and it's... Mm, yeah, you're mm, artificial. Yeah. So yeah, it's cool to see. I always appreciate it when paleo artists will do that. Will work yes. in a little like, here's this animal. Oh, this bone is broken. Yeah. Here's this one. Yeah, it's got this one side of it is a little bit wonked. Mm-hmm. It's got a scar. It's got a... Yeah. Because they're animals. They're doing animal stuff and animals get beat up. Another cool note here that's just they wanted to mention that they were able to do they were able to do a 3d laser scan of the skull and this did not provide crazy new insight to just this research but it mainly was they it was mainly for them to be able to provide that with their publication so any other researcher now has access to a 3d laser scanned copy of this skull that's cool yes so they are trying to promote that and they said you know that this we are now in the future of paleontology, so they're trying to promote that usage. Yeah, digital sharing of scans and, and models of skulls. Very cool. It is one of my favorite updates to paleontology today. What a time. What an incredible time. And with this incredibleness, we are going to wrap up the news and get ready to discuss how horses have come to be what you recognize them as today. So by now, I'm sure the question on everyone's mind is, what is a horse? Uh, it, well, I, I've I've learned that a horse is a horse. Of course, of course. Naturally. <laughs> so we, basically everyone on the planet is familiar with horses. Probably close to it. Because they are one of the animals that have been more closely tied to human history than most the only things that probably have a a run for that money are things like cattle and dogs and i bet second to dogs i mean as domesticants go yes dogs but i bet horses aside from dogs have the uh, capitalization on media representation yep so like horses we know horses pretty well they are those four-legged hoofed long-muzzled grazing your grass eating mammals they're fairly big yeah yeah they're that i always uh, muscular yeah they're very muscular i always love when something makes a point to remind us that horses are big horses are a little i'm gonna i'm gonna tell everybody a a fact about me yeah i'm a little bit scared of horses i am 100 percent a little bit scared of horses not like actually afraid Mm -mm. the way i like to describe it is that standing next to a horse i feel the same way that i do when i'm driving next to an 18 wheeler yeah i'm sure everything's fine i'm a little uncomfortable and if i have a chance to just speed up and not be next to the 18 wheeler i'm gonna do that yes that's exactly how i feel (laughs) is i i prefer to hang around active heavy equipment as little as possible. <laughs> and a horse. <laughs> when I'm not active, the one. Heavy equipment. Yes, when I'm not the one in the driver's seat, I would prefer not to be right next to it. I'll watch you do cool stuff from here. <laughs> yeah, horses are these big, powerful animals. Very important to human society. But the question of what is a horse, there's more behind it than just the animal we recognize. So first and foremost, horses are ungulates. What? They are in the group ungulata. What? So ungulates are your hoofed mammals is the general not all the ones not all the members in ungulata have what you would recognize as a hoof and not all of them 
quite fit the classic definition, but your hoofed mammals, basically the vast majority of the big mammalian land herbivores. Ungulata, ungulates, comes from the word ungual, which is the scientific term for the last digit in the toe. Mm -hmm. And in ungulates, they stand on that last digit. They are quite literally tiptoe walkers. Yes. It's called ungulagrade posture. So plantigrade is what humans are. Yep. You're walking with the heel down. Bears and raccoons. I think raccoons. I think so. Digitigrade is what you see in your cats and dogs and a lot of, you know, your uh, velociraptor, Mm -hmm. where it's all or most of the fingers are flat on the ground. Yes. Or the toes, but then the ankle or the heel uh, or the wrist is raised off the ground. This is what gives those a lot of those animals the double jointed back legs yeah the that, backwards knee yes exactly. that you might look at it oh that's a backwards knee no it's just the ankle mm-hmm. ungulates walk on the very tip the very last bone so they're these dainty tiptoe walkers it's ballerina like they are putting all the way on the front of the toe and they put a many of them put a hoof down there for support and because it looks cool which is just a hoof is just a very heavy nail so it's a very modified, specialized nail that can help take the weight and support that toe tip. Ungulates. Ungulates. So, hoofed mammals. These have been around for quite some time. They showed up in the late Paleocene. We see one of the earliest members in East Asia, Radinskia, which is often hailed as, if not the earliest, one of the earliest ungulate relatives. Okay. So, they go back a ways. Early on in that history... They split into two main groups, and those two groups have developed kind of alongside each other parallelly ever since. For 60 million years or so. (laughs) For a ridiculous amount of time. (laughs) The first are the artiodactyls, artiodactyla, the even-toed ungulates. With an even number of toes. Yes, so they walk on... The, on two toes, they put the vast majority of weight on two of their toes, the third and the fourth, which would mean if you're looking at your hand, your middle finger and the ring finger. So if you were to put all the fingers down and just walk on those, that's what they're doing. These are what you'll often hear are called the cloven hooves. Right. Uh, Because it's cleft in the middle. cleaved in half. So you're... Camels, pigs, deer, bovines, cows and bison and goats giraffes honestly most if it has a hoof it's probably one of these most of them are even toed ungulates artiodactyls even cetaceans fall in this group technically because their ancestors fall within the artiodactyl group right deer pigs goats sheep whales the common the usual suspects yeah that is just you know (laughs) the ones you'd expect (laughs) these also are denoted from the other group and how they digest plants they are the ones that use the stomach chambers that cows are so famous for to digest the cellulose the tough plant material and slowly ferment it in their bellies the other group are the parasidactyls the odd-toed ungulates the definition here is Not necessarily that they have an odd number of toes, because there are ones who have not odd numbers, but they are walking on an odd-numbered toe, because they put the vast majority of their weight on the middle toe. Right. Which always makes it very difficult to explain to kid groups, because you have to say they use this finger, and then your 
you're flipping the bird. You can't show that. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. And I was about to make the same comment. Yep. I do it upside down and <laughs> yep. I just kind of bend my fingers back a little bit. So that way I'm not making a fist and yep. it's not holding it up because an upside down middle finger is for some reason much less offensive. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, cause it's not flipped. Yeah. It's not, you have a bird is the unflipped. Bird. The bird's yeah. sleeping. It's fine. <laughs> so it, it, they are walking on that central toe. Now, many of them still have other toes. Yeah. But their foot is arranged to have the middle toe being to have the middle toe as the dominant toe, you right. could say. It's doing most of the work. It's doing the heavy lifting literally. It's the workhorse. <laughs> <laughs> These are split into three main groups. Your tapirs, Woo. which are your weird little hippo pig trunked (laughs) guys that are in south america and malaysia your rhinos and then your equines the horses hey and so these are your prisodactyls you can actually see it one of my favorite things to point out to people is if you watch a rhino run it looks like a horse. Yes, it does. It is just a heavy class horse. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's it's the the tank of it's horses. It's the tank of horses. <laughs> and yeah, they just trot. They trot exactly like a horse trots. You could picture someone poised very, you know, professionally on top of the rhino, and it would just be this lovely little uh, yeah. pumps. They'd be a rhinostrian. <laughs> I know I don't want to be when I grow up. <laughs> That's fantastic. They also digest the cellulose a little differently instead of having stomach chambers they have a large intestines a a exaggerated intestines to do the bulk of that tough digestion right. so they're rear gut mm-hmm. versus foregut and that also means they don't do that chewing the cud that you see a lot of the even toed ungulates yeah. do where they barf up the little bit rechew it and then swallow it again yeah which the means hindgut fermenters can't quite manage that. Because that would be one. <laughs> it's got to come all the way back. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. So it means that prosodactyls are not as gross. Yeah. It also, I don't know if they are less efficient. I don't know, actually. I think because there are definitely benefits to foregut fermenters. Yes, there are. I know that rabbits, I believe, I believe are hindgut fermenters, which I've heard is why they eat their poop. Yeah, because they didn't digest it fully. It's got to go through again. Yeah. Yeah, I put it back in the wash. <laughs> this isn't done yet. Yep, yep. <laughs> Gross. So now we have our equines. Equus is the genus, uh, Equidae being the family. Mm-hmm. The Equus genus, this one genus, includes all horse-like things that are alive today. So this is one genus that is our entire understanding of this group from the modern <laughs> standpoint. Yeah. Which is important. We're going to mention that later on, uh, probably more than once. This includes your horses, your zebras, your donkeys, and the wild asses. They're, that's the official name. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast contains adult language. Yeah, like, I I went to look to see if there are other good names. No, there's nope, not. They are no. the wild asses. Wild asses. This sometimes, depending on the the layout from the study can include multiple subgenre uh genera so it can be split up further but it includes typically between 8 to 10 species you know solid species and numerous subspecies yeah lots of subspecies this is separated these groups are separated typically into two or three clades you have the cabalines 
which are horses. Horse, like the domesticated horses. Domesticated horse, horses. Wild horses. Mm-hmm. Cab- from Cabalus. Yeah. Which is... Well, so Equus Cabalus is the species, the horse. Mm-hmm. And forgive me, but Caballo or something like that is Spanish. Yeah. And probably Latin. Yeah. So that's, those are your horses. You have your zebras... Which, there are three species today. Mm-hmm. So it's not just zebra. There are multiple kinds. And then... Literally, a horse of a different color. <laughs> a horse of particularly two colors. Yeah, a horse <laughs> of no colors. Yeah, really. really. And then the asses and donkeys and close relatives of that are in their own clade. Okay. So it actually splits up the way you would expect, usually. Interesting. Horse, donkey, zebra. Yes. Certain research, like mitochondrial DNA research splits it into two groups with horses on their own and zebras and the donkeys together. Like the okay. the zebra and donkey clade put into one. So sometimes two, sometimes three, but these are kind of the main separations in Equus. So when it comes to horses, the horses we recognize today are a little weird because most of the horses, if I ask you all to picture a horse in your mind, it's probably not a natural horse it's domesticated because vast majority of horses today are domesticated it's like if you uh, try to picture a chicken yes exactly that's not a wild chicken so, well that's not really a chicken that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a modded chicken so yes yes it is <laughs> so this one species of equus cabalus or equus ferris cabalus is sometimes it's the okay. subspecies for the domesticated includes around 400 breeds Whew. I counted the ones listed on Wikipedia, so it's Wikipedia, but there were 455 horses and pony breeds listed. Wow. So a lot. So once again, when you think of like the giant Clydesdale and a racing horse and a tiny pony, one species. Like dogs. Like dogs. Ridiculous domestication going on. But horses in general, you know, all the equines share some major features. For the most part, they're all grazers. They all have... Grazing adaptations, which means their teeth are particularly formatted for that. Right. Grazing meaning that most of their diet is grass. Yes. They're eating, they're they're mowing the lawn, not trimming the trees. Right. They have big old incisors up front, uh, 12 total, for nipping, for like clipping the plants that they're going to be eating and getting into the mouth. The back teeth, both premolars and molars, uh, there are 24 total, are highly adapted for chewing this tough grass and this is one of the things that's famously known about horse this is horse teeth are iconic iconic they are high they're very tall teeth right your tooth is you have your root which is the part that sticks into the gum and the crown which is the functioning part on the outside our teeth are low crowned yes rachidont the crown is you know you've held if you've held a tooth the crown and the root are similar in length the root might even be longer Horses are hypsodont, high crowned. It is this real tall, like skyscraper of a crown, mm-hmm. and then this root at the bottom. Absolutely. And the way this benefits the horse is typically with younger horses, a lot of that crown has not erupted yet. And as they chew the horribly tough grass, which is mixed in with dirt because you're pulling it up the ground and then has glass inside it. Sure does. Because it's a terrorist. Grass. <laughs> grass glass. And so, Episode 38. Yes. This <laughs> grass glass is going to just wear down, file down the teeth, 
and as they are filed down, the tooth continues to erupt. Yep. So they're not ever growing like rodent teeth. So they're not growing like fingernails. They are just pushing out. And ideally, they will push out and last a normal lifespan of the horse. They are also very rough surfaced. If you look at a horse's tooth compared to ours, ours has a few bumps and it is just kind of pebbly looking while the horse tooth is this like back and forth folded pattern of ridges, rough, sharp ridges. But overall, the surface is fairly flat, especially once it's. And so this means they can grind just millstone that tough grass. If you ever get, uh, you could probably, I think you could just, if you just Google horse teeth, you might be lucky enough to find an image of a cutaway yeah. of a horse jaw where you could see the tooth inside the jaw. Because horses have these big, deep jaws. Yes. And this yeah, there's, magazine. there's a, a city of skyscraper teeth sitting in there, slowly pushing upwards. And uh, that feature is actually where some of our proverbs come from. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth is a reference to the fact that you can get a rough age estimate based on the eruption of the tooth in a horse. And so if someone gives you a horse as a gift, checking the teeth is very rude. Like checking the price tag. It's like kicking the tires on a (laughs) car that someone gave to you. And so this is uh, where that phrase comes from. It's also where the phrase long in the tooth Mm -hmm. comes from because it's you are further into your tooth. So yeah, like horses... Big part of our culture. Yeah, they are. Uh, they do have more teeth than that. In stallions, they have teeth in between the incisors and molars that are very cananiform uh, that are called lushes. Huh. Yeah. I didn't see a particular, if there if those are used in a particular way, I just, I, I wouldn't be surprised since it's stallions if they're used against one another, but I didn't see that referenced anywhere. Listen, horse breeders. Yeah. We already have camels. Yep. If they do something cool with those and someone knows it, Tell us, because it, yeah, it didn't pop up when I was looking around. Surely there are horse fans. They, yeah, um, someone out there has to like horses. <laughs> <laughs> the other most famous feature of the horse is their one hoof. They have taken perissodactyly to the extreme. Exactly. Like, they said, well, we're putting all our weight here anyway, so I only need one. And that's, they are standing on the tip of one toe. Yeah effectively we're gonna go in more detail they are huge powerful grazers on stilts today we have all the domesticated kinds there are wild horses most of those are wild domesticated horses that have gone feral there are a few truly wild specimens but nowadays the shavalsky horse is really the only agreed upon truly wild species of horse and if you're confused by the name, that's because it's written Perswalski. Perswalski. But I think it's originally Shavalski. It's Mike Perswalski. <laughs> I'm watching you, Perswalski. <laughs> Always watching. <laughs> now, these horses are very rare. One article I found said that at the time of that article's writing, the last wild Shavalski horse was seen in Mongolia in 1968. Ooh. But there are rewilding efforts going on, so populations are being re-released. So hopefully we will have Shavalsky horses into the future. Uh, but this seems to be the only truly wild and truly still wild, you know, mm-hmm. even with the rewilding, but that it was not domesticated. It is as it was. But that's it. 
Yeah. <laughs> the rest of horses are ones we've messed with. Yeah. Or they're zebras and donkeys. Yes. Right? Yeah, exactly. Outside of, of horse horse. Exactly. The horsiest of horses. So the reason people get so excited about the horse fossil record, for anyone who's unaware of why we make such a big deal out of it, is because horses show this really beautiful example of the, the steps from one form to another in many ways in that early horses very much did not look like or behave or live like today's horses the earliest ancestors were very small dog size dog size like labrador retriever sized uh, some got even smaller than that but like the earliest ones were on average these dog size forest dwelling browsers so they're eating leaves soft vegetation they had multiple toes and were probably much more leapers and skippers you know, than gallopers. Now they are these massive plains-dwelling open land. Grazers that stand on one toe each. So One toe each leg. Yeah, vastly different animals. If you put them next to each other, you would not very likely just go, yeah, obviously, those are the same kind of animal. The horse fossil record is great. Yeah. It is really good. Lots of good horse specimens out there. From around the world, but particularly North America, where a majority of horse diversification and evolution occurred. Horse fossils seem to tell the story very well. During this evolution, there are some trends, some common trends that are often cited and seem to have been happening on the initial look at these, this fossil record. First is increase in size, obviously. Right. They started out small. Now they are big. Yes. And, you know, like we said, small as in two to five hands tall. Hands? Yes. So one of the things that comes up if you look up horses is that they are <laughs> measured in hands. Yeah. Uh, that's the typical way of measuring them. This is taking your hand and we're talking palm. So from right, right. your pinky side. P pinky to thumb. To the edge of your, the outside of your thumb, stacking those to get the height of the horse from hmm. uh, foot to shoulder. Right, ground, ground to shoulder. That was the typical way of measuring horses until King Henry VIII had it standardized to four inches. Which I assume is the length of his hand. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you will still hear hands used to measure horses, and that's just four-inch increments. I'm not going to use it the whole time here, <laughs> but we're talking about 20-inch high animals yeah so a, a foot and a half foot not and a quite half. two feet up to now was it 54 inches so size increase is one of those trends reduction of hooves because we had lots of toes now we have one hoof lengthening of the legs they were much more normal proportion legs now they have these very long legs with fusion of a lot of the independent elements in the leg yeah to sturdy it up Elongation of the muzzle. They started fairly short-faced. Now they're long-faced. They also see an increase in the size and complexity of the brain. Interesting. Which makes sense for that horses are very easy to work with. They are not stupid animals. Right, right. Uh, not saying that you know there are necessarily just stupid animals because your brain's small, but they are uh, cognitively complex. And those grazing teeth. Earlier horses had much more just bumpy teeth like ours right. more like a tapir or a pig yeah. or something that that would be browsing so 
we see these changes, we have a great fossil record, and at one point it was thought that there was this nice, easy transition between all of those. Right, it's a, it's a perfect opportunity to see, oh, they gradually got taller, their legs gradually lengthened, the teeth gradually changed. We do see it go, individuals that have three and four toes, and then just three toes, and then two very small side toes, and then... One, so, like, right, it right. looks like you have a perf perfect transitional record. And we have individuals of intermediate heights, individuals mm -hmm. with intermediate tooth sizes. Part of the reason that we think this so heavily, uh, or we thought this so heavily for so long, is that Thomas Huxley, Darwin's friend, who promoted the his theory of natural selection, was one of the people who championed this idea. On a trip here to the U.S. in 1876... He was here to talk about evolution using fossil horse records. In the 1870s. Yeah. But he was using European records, which are not as good. No uh, offense, Europe. Yeah, no, it's... But just North America is lousy with horses. Yeah. He was planning to do that, and then one of his first stops before that was at Yale, where he met Othniel Charles Marsh, the U.S. paleontologist who had a large collection of horse fossils, sure mostly did. from the western U.S., Huxley was so struck by that collection that he made that the focus of his talk <laughs> and talked about how it was this perfect example of exactly what Darwin was talking about. Right. Slow, gradual changes from this species through these species to this one. Now, if you have been listening to our podcast for a while, surely <laughs> you may be thinking... It seems like it's never quite that simple. And indeed it isn't. But this idea lasted for a while. And when we were saying this is literally a textbook example, it has been in textbooks for a long time. If you Google horse evolution, you will see that diagram yep. of small up to large, which we should be clear, did happen. Yes, that absolutely happened. There was that transition from the early stage, gradually experimenting with things intermediate mm -hmm. but it wasn't the only thing that was happening and that's the big part this original idea kind of proposed it as there were small horses and then those small horses started getting bigger and started eating grass and started losing toes until they were horses right like if you went back this many million years they were all dog-sized yep. forest dwellers if you fast forwarded 20 million years They'd all be intermediate sized with three toes and kind of half high teeth. It's if you were uh, time traveling uh, after the Cretaceous, you could guess roughly when you were by how high the horses came up to you. Yeah, it'd be like a flip book. It's like a gauge. <laughs> it's like a temperature. <laughs> like, oh, oh, yeah. We have hip high horses. <laughs> well, Oligocene. Yep. <laughs> so that was kind of the idea. We now know from further study of the fossil record that that is not at all what happened in <laughs> fact it doesn't seem that it was a simple consistent transition in any regard really it's very much uh, reminiscent of we talked in episode 37 about the evolution of birds and one thing that i'm always I, I find people are often surprised to hear is that the cretaceous was overrun with birds of all different sizes yeah. sizes and shapes because you get this image of like oh yeah it was there were bird-like dinosaurs and then they were kind of more and more bird-like, and then the dinosaurs went extinct, and then you had birds. Exactly. No, birds experimented with all sorts of shapes and sizes 
before most of them went extinct and we were left with birds as we know them now. And that's one of the issues that they talk about here is that part of the reason we have this idea that the, that this straight line evolutionary path makes so much sense is because all we have left are horses. As we say all the time, <laughs> it's super easy for paleontologists to get caught in this trap of thinking the modern representatives are a good example yeah, are the correct oh. answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, of the full fossil history. Modern sloths are super weird sloths. Yes. <laughs> they they are incorrect sloths if we're <laughs> yeah. doing averages. Modern horses, not necessarily your average horse. A couple of the things that we've seen that didn't happen that way. And I'm using this section to kind of debunk some of those myths before we go in and actually look at what some of those fossil individuals were. First, the grazing dentition doesn't seem like it came on gradually. It actually seems like it kind of came on fairly abruptly. Interesting. A and rapid adaptation. Exactly. We don't see adaptations for grazing until about 20 million years ago. Now, horse horse relative fossil history goes back 55 yeah. million years. So well over halfway into there being things that would eventually lead to horses, we finally see grazing adaptations because 20 million years ago is when grassland habitats started becoming a big deal yeah the first half of horse evolution as it were there weren't grasslands and so Episode 38 exactly so we don't see a, there's no reason for them to get these high crowned grinding teeth and so we don't see that come on gradually as you might expect it's fairly abrupt and after it chemical analysis suggests that many members and lineages actually reverted which is not what happened they readapted to a browsing grazing okay. like a dual interesting so it wasn't that the group became grazers some became grazers or grazing became more common and even some of those went yeah but leaves are still pretty good yeah <laughs> so once again the it wasn't doing it as a group they were each doing their own things a mosaic body size probably one of the biggest harped on examples of that original uh, diagram so to speak <laughs> yeah <laughs> is another one that didn't happen consistently the pattern we see is kind of two sections among horse evolution history which is once again 55 to 20 million years ago horses were pretty much fairly small at least small to maybe medium and then 20 million years ago once again when grasslands start becoming a big deal we see a much more diverse range of sizes we don't see them all get big. We see some lineages get big, some even bigger than, you know, there are some individual species that are bigger than today's, but we see some get close to and up to the size of today's horses. We see some stay at those small sizes. There are some that get smaller. So it didn't just get big. They just started doing lots of stuff. Horses just diversified in size, some of which included getting big. This is also big because horses have often been a uh, champion of Cope's Law. Yep. This idea that generally, over time, groups of animals increase in size throughout their history. That if you start at the beginning of an animal's lineage and look at the end, they're going to be on average bigger. And this, at least, it doesn't support that as consistently as it was used to support it in the past. Right. They're not all getting bigger. Yes. On, they are on average getting bigger. And they are at maximum getting bigger, mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily horses. Neogene, right? The last 20 million years 
isn't just the era of period. The period <laughs> of big horses. Exactly. The one that's probably my favorite of these, you're not quite doing it right, examples are the toes. Ooh. So early horses had multiple toes. Up to five toes yes. on each foot, which is your standard yeah. vertebrate number. Now, even early horses, or like a many of the earlier horses, had already started to reduce. With even some of the early ones having four toes up front on the forefeet, three on the back feet. Which I think is also what tapers I believe have so. today. Yeah. So they had already done some reducing, but they still had feet. <laughs> they weren't... <laughs> yeah, they, they weren't pegs. They weren't stilts yet. <laughs> now, this was pretty much true for most of the early horses. The, this was a very diverse group. They weren't doing poorly. It's once again, we think that the single hoof must be the superior answer because it's all we have left. But the truth is that's probably just the lucky group where circumstances benefited that. Because what we see is that when you look at the broader scope of horse evolution, really only one lineage showed a extreme trend of reducing down to a single toe. And that's the lineage that led to horses that we know today. Right, but they were evolving alongside... Other lineages who just kept their toes. Yep, three-toed horses, multi-toed horses. Some were only standing on the middle toe but still had extra toes, but many of those other lineages weren't showing any signs of getting rid of those toes necessarily. So this raises the question of if single toe is so beneficial what were all these other crazy horses doing and the answer is fine <laughs> yeah well it's like teeth and birds exactly like yeah all birds are toothless because that's what that was the five percent or so of birds that made it through the end cretaceous before that there were a lot of horse birds with teeth yeah and very likely answer for why did the one toad last is more climactic than it was just better than these multi-toed Right. It got lucky. Yeah. We'll talk about that in more detail when we get to that part of the timeline. Another little tidbit I just wanted to throw in was a bit of research I found about horse toes. Just to kind of add in that even the idea that they're single-toed has been misunderstood on how they got to be single-toed. Because for the longest time, it was just proposed that, well, no, they had five toes, and they just started evolving less toes. You know, they evolved the way these toes, and they evolved the way those toes. Now they have one left which we see uh, isn't exactly what happened, or at least didn't 100% happen that way, because horses have these splints of bone, these little long, thin shards on either side of the hoof that are the remnants of the two toes, the second and fourth toe. Yeah, if you look at the, a horse metacarpal or metatarsal, the hand or foot bone, mm -hmm. you'll see these splints of the second and fourth met where they used to be, now just stuck onto the side of the bone and this has basically been the the way it was discussed for a long time more recent research basically came in and said yeah but that doesn't account for the first and fifth where'd they go and i would have just assumed yeah no they're gone they, gone yeah they just evolved them away like snake legs exactly but upon a closer look the backside of those splints actually have ridges that these researchers were suggesting could be remnants of the first and fifth toe and sure enough, this is supported in the fossil record. There was one horse footprints from Hipparion, which was a three-toed horse, but the footprints left five divots. Oh. Showing that the first and fifth toe were still present in the foot and still doing some support, even though they weren't externally 
or physically visible as toes. And so the idea that how they've evolved down the one toe is even more complex. Uh, this is supported by f uh, fetal analysis that shows more than the necessary amount of blood vessels going to the foot. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> so that it, it has blood vessels set up for more toes than just a single toe. Wow. Yeah. So they haven't, they're not actually single-toed animals. Not really. They're kind of still five-toed. They're just not using, and it's not like a whole toe. Yeah. It little vis, vestigial The echoes fragments. of a toe. The echoes of a toe. The ruins of a toe. And the final thing I wanted to mention was another thing that we've just always kind of held to be true is that part of the reason for reducing down to a single hoof was that it was better to go faster with. Their ankles don't twist. You know, you have less toes to worry about. It's right. more efficient for going fast to outrun the big predators that are now out on the plains where you're grazing. You have a long, long legs mm -hmm. and you've got all the muscle and weight up at the top so that it's, you've got a lot of power to move the leg, but the leg itself is actually light and thin and easy to move. Exactly. Some other research, more recent findings, suggest that the actual benefit is that it seems to have strengthened what is known as the spring foot feature of the horse so horses are fast but a lot of our images of horses being fast are horses we've bred to be fast right race but, horses exactly the thing horses are actually really good at is endurance long steady efficient travel their leg is evolved to allow that ligaments in the hoof act like springs like a you know a compound bow sort of concept where it, which allows them to use the force of them walking or running to aid in the next step. Right. A bounce in there. Basically, after the impact of the force hitting, those ligaments help flex the foot forward again for the next step. So they're saving energy. So the adaptation of a single hoof seems to have been less about speed, more about efficiency, which would mean that it was less a response to predators and more a response to wide-ranging grazing across these wide grasslands i'm not needing to be to get hoofs to run away from you i'm needing hoofs to get to the food that's way over there right now it's the dry season and mm -hmm. i need to go all the way over there and i don't want to die on the way because i'm exhausted we see this in other parts of the horse anatomy the horse body is not what you would expect for a speeding animal they actually have a very short inflexible torso you know body which for a lot of other fast animals is not what you see. You see a very flexible, able to extend and contract greater distance. We don't see that in horse. We see a much more energy efficient body type. So they, they suggest basically that we've been made biased by what we've made horses into. Interesting. And we've made them famous for their speed, but that's not really what they evolved for. So we, we have... A lot of misconceptions about horses that have needed to be overturned to get a clearer picture of what their evolution was actually like. Now, with us having a better understanding of what horses are and a better view of general horse evolution, let's go in and actually go through some of the members that it took to get from small little forest dwellers to the big plains dwellers. Let's meet the horses. So as we mentioned earlier, horse evolution goes back 
about 55 million years. Which brings us to the very beginning of the Eocene. That's when we see the first, what will be the ancestors of horses. Now these are those small, forest-dwelling, browsing animals. One of the most famous of these early members is Eohippus. Eohippus. Yeah. The dawn horse. The dawn horse. Hippus means horse. Mm-hmm. You're going to hear a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hippopotamus, the river horse. River horse. Yeah. This is often noted as the first ancestral horse. Now, there is some confusion on names because many of you may have heard of Hyracotherium. Yes. <laughs> Hyracotherium. So I didn't know this. We were just discussing yep. this right before the episode. Hyracotherium. It seems the story in brief is that Hyracotherium was considered one of the earliest horses. Mm-hmm. And then for a while, Hyracotherium and Eohippus were thought to be the same genus. Yeah. And then more recently, one species of Hyracotherium might now be considered not part of the direct horse lineage. Yes. But a different group. And that's the type species, which means it takes the name Hyracotherium with it. So all of the other Hyracotheriums that are part of the horse lineage are going to be assigned to different names like Eohippus and other Hippuses. So that's for those of you who are hoping to hear about Hyracotherium. There Eohippus. you go. <laughs> <laughs> so so <laughs> Hyracotherium will from henceforth be known as... Eohippus. Yes. In this in this podcast episode, the part of Hyracotherium will be played by Eohippus. <laughs> so Eohippus is an equivalent example of that earliest ancestral horse. Yes, the first horse. We are looking at 52 million years ago. Eocene still. It is known from both North America and Europe. So it's widespread, hoofed, browsing, with four toes on the front, three toes on the back. This is the one that's just like 20 inches tall at max. Yeah. Dog. Dog size. Labrador retriever. Short skull. Lacked that long, flexible muzzle, you know, that we know horses for, that those big lips. Uh, probably didn't have that sort of mouth going for it. Smaller cranium. Smaller uh, brain. Had a both a shorter head and neck, so it didn't have that long longer horse neck that is so characteristic of them today it also had an arched back what they described as more springy very different very different shaped low crowned bumpy teeth not grinding not grazing it's like a little deer pig yeah kind of creature so this would have been much more quick small forest animal yeah darting through the forest you know springing and jumping and hopping not galloping across the plains which of course there were none. There were none. <laughs> Not it, grassy plains. Anyway. No, yeah, exactly. It was. It is so unhorse-like that earlier on, its connection to modern horses was not at first suspected. Hmm. So, like, it so doesn't look like horses, it wasn't connected to them right away. Very much like whales, where it doesn't look like them. A lot of the art will often give them horse-like colors. Yeah, and it does, which... Mm. is one of those where it's mm. like, are, are you cheating because you know the answer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, which is, it definitely could. Those colors are not right, too right. different from deer. But I feel like a lot of fossil horses are drawn to look probably more horse-like than they were. Right. Just because, eh, what else are you going to reference? Especially when you consider that most of the horse coloration that we see today is not horse coloration. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so it wasn't really until we got more of the fossil record that and then it became clear that, okay, well, Eohippus obviously fits within 
the trends we're seeing in these fossils. Right. We started with modern horses. We went back to the Ice Age and we had something that's clearly right before these. And we kept following that back and we kept following the change. And, oh, there's the Ohippus. It brings you back to me. Where, where did it bring you? <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, Eohippus also gave rise to multiple now extinct lineages. So cool. once again, it was not this straight line. It was this mosaic. It was, as I mentioned, both old and new world. So both here in the US and Europe. But the evolution that followed chiefly took place in North America. So most of this discussion, and it, this is, I promise this is not us just playing favorites. <laughs> here but, in America. Yeah, here in America, where horses came from. This is not just because we live here. The vast majority of horse diversification and evolution was happening here, and they were spreading out from North America. Interestingly enough, that's true of all the perissodactyls we yeah. have today. Most of rhino evolution and tapir evolution and horse evolution is centered here, mm -hmm. which is super fun because none of them live here anymore. Yep. <laughs> so during the rest of the Eocene, we're still dealing with mostly small species. And most of the changes we see are in dentition, not getting to the grazing, but in the differentiation of the teeth. So okay. Eohippus had very distinct incisors, premolars, molars oh i see like we do you know classic where, mammal setup like a dog yeah like a dog yeah. where you can see them very clearly apart we see that start to change a little bit as we go on so with slightly later members like orohippus in the middle eocene you know 50 million years ago this one we see that the fourth premolar has become more molar like and the first premolar is dwarfing so uh. the premolars are starting to kind of join the molars. And today's horses, premolars and molars are almost indistinguishable. Right. They have this like tooth battery. It's just almost. tooth, 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 tooth. And we all tooth, 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 tooth the same way. Here we're starting to see that. Where we're getting this more uniformed back teeth. And we do see more pronounced crests, but they haven't taken on the flat. They're just getting a little more, little more grindy. A little more complex. Yeah. As we get into... Epihippus, we're looking at still mid-Miocene, but yeah, 47 million years ago. Okay. It has continued that. More grinding teeth. There are now five fairly low-crowned grinding cheek teeth with crests, you know, now. So seeing a little bit more of that kind of tooth shape. They've lost the cusp, so they don't have those bumps that we're so used to seeing on teeth. And the third and fourth premolars are basically just molars now. So that's the first thing we see with early horse evolution is their teeth start becoming more like what we expect to see. Right. More the arrangement we're familiar with, if not just yet the actual individual tooth shapes. Exactly. So the mouth is starting to become a little more horsey. Horsey. This is not to say, once again, it wasn't linear. I know some of the examples we're going to give are going to sound like it was linear, but these things were not happening just completely sequentially. A lot of these were happening in parallel to each other. And in different areas and for different reasons. Because both of these still very much resembled Eohippus in their body size and shape. So still small, still lots of toes. As we get into the Oligocene, so we're at 33 to 23 million years ago. We see climates in North America start to become drier. Early grasslands start to come into their own. They start to evolve. 
grasses are starting to spread. Environment's getting drier. We are entering the ice house. Yes. Mesohippus is an early Oligocene horse-like ancestor. This one's more horse-like. It's larger. So six hands. We're at <laughs> 24 inches tall. More, more modern horse. A solid foot. Whoa. Uh, the snouts become a little more muzzle-like, and the legs are longer and more slender. And it does have a larger brain, but still multiple toes. Though the fourth toe, the outermost toe on the front foot, so their fourth toe, even if it's not the fourth digit, has started to become reduced. It's it's effectively vestigial at this point. Okay. Uh, and this is something we'll see. For the most part, horse history is three-toed horses. Right. The four toes on the front did not last for the, right. the majority. Or at least functionally three-toed horses. Exactly. Functionally three-toed. So right now, all four feet on mesohippus have three functional toes still with the middle toe being the the weight bearing central column of course it's a perissodactyl yes. after all it just simply is not done any other way <laughs> this is how my that's how eohippus did it it was good enough for them but the thing that's also worth noting here is not only does it have multiple toes they also these multi-toed horses also had foot pads so it wasn't walking on that hoof tip the same way they had pads so still very hoof-like toe tips in that they had those nails, but foot pads were present, which today's horses do not have. Yeah, so that's more taper or rhino-esque. Yeah, so a little squishy feet. Cool. Still browsing teeth. Okay. So this one's still browsing. Even if we were getting more, you know, better at grinding stuff, that doesn't mean we're eating grass right away. Right. Myohippus, at the late Oligocene, around 26 million years ago, is significantly larger. I could not find a hand one for this one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me the inches and we'll calculate. No, this one, it gave me kilograms. So it's oh. 40 to 55 kilograms. So it was 10 to 12 hands heavy. Yeah. <laughs> How much does a hand weigh? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> What's a hand weigh? Cut off King Henry's hand. <laughs> so, but this one's getting bigger. When I was comparing it to the other weights, not horse bigger. You know, yeah, I think it's no, like forty to fifty kilograms, twice the size of Eohippus or something uh, like that. Americans, that's about a hundred pounds. Yeah, that's not a horse. So it's it's weighing the size of a, a smaller person. You know, yes, like it's a hefty dog. Yeah, it's a big. <laughs> it's dog. a big dog, but it's still not. We're not quite to pony size or anything right. like that. So we're starting to see bigger. The size range is widening. Yes. So during this time, we see some bigger individuals coming in. We see some reduction of the toes. And this does seem to be a member of the line that will lead us to Equus. Uh, okay. Which many of the examples we're going to go through today are, because that's what we Those are the, talking the about. Those are the famous ones. It, we're also talking about the evolution of horses. Yes, yeah. modern horses. If you want to hear about all the weird ones, that is too many examples. <laughs> I'll give some of them, but we can't do them all in this episode. So a lot of these are going to be... The lineage that led that way, just always keep in mind that there were others doing other weird things alongside this lineage. This one does seem to show extra crests appearing on the upper cheek teeth. Okay. So we're getting a little more of that crested tooth. That occlusal complexity. Yes. And now we enter the Miocene when horses happen. <laughs> like, yeah. This is horse heyday. All the way back in episode three, we <laughs> talked about how around this time, 
grasslands take over. Yep. And that just creates this domino effect of ecosystems. This is where we see um, a lot of major diversification in a lot of our modern day groups of animals, including modern day rodents, modern day snakes, which is why we were talking about in episode three, and indeed horses. We have grasslands taking over. The Miocene is 23 to 5 million years. So right around 20, grasslands really kick in. And when a lot of the horse stuff starts happening in earnest. So Myohippus is believed to be ancestral to many of the descendants we see diversify into the Miocene. And it splits into numerous lineages. Some, like the the Ankintotheres, include a variety of three-toed, still-browsing horse cousins. Multiple genera here. So a successful group that remained three-toed into the Miocene. Some of these uh, spread from North America across the Bering Strait into Eurasia and were very successful over there. So this group did quite well and remained three-toed and browsing. Right. It, that was just what one group of horses was like. Yeah. Another branch was what led to modern horses. And these we see more, see more of those trends that were so famous examples for overall horse evolution. It was really only happening in this one branch from Myohippus. Parahippus is often shown as the first representative of this this new branch, this line. We're in the early Miocene with Parahippus. Teeth seem to be clearly adapted for eating grass. Okay, hey, we're grazing. So now we are grazing. Uh, we're doing the we're doing it the way horses do it today. <laughs> Newfangled horses with their newfangled molars. Absolutely, we're seeing those tall crowns. We're seeing those grinding surfaces. It seems to have the same kind of eruption of erupting throughout its life. So, quote-unquote, horse-like cheek teeth. Uh, uh, available on demand with Parahippus. <laughs> uh, so, we now have grazers. Merichippus is our next member on the line. We're into the middle-late Miocene. It's jumping forward a bit. This one seems to have gone completely to grazing. So, the, the shift is complete now down this lineage to modern horses for full grazing teeth. It also looked much more like a modern pony. More straight-standing about 10 hands tall, so 40 inches. Okay. So we're right. just above three feet at the shoulder. And the skull looked very similar to modern horses. Cool. So this is probably, what, 10 million or so years ago in the mid to late Miocene. Mm -hmm. So we're, you know, to put you in perspective, not that far, not that long ago. Yeah, we're, we're coming up. We're coming up on the modern day. The feet still were three-toed, but we're seeing a reduction of the two side toes. They're rather small. The central toe basically bore the animal's weight completely. In some species, though, the foot pad had been lost. Okay. So now we are on hmm. full hooves, but three of them. We see the evidence of the spring foot now present. So now we are getting a much more efficient long-distance walker. Interesting. So these are, these are early horses that truly seem to have taken to the grasslands. They're grazing. They are... Walking efficiently. Taking long walks across yeah. the grasslands. <laughs> yes. With someone special. <laughs> now, once again, though, these give rise to multiple lines. Right. So this did not just transition nice and perfectly into a pony. There are multiple lines that remained three-toed. Hipparion, Neohipparion, and Nanippus are all three lineages that seem to have descended from Merichippus and retained those three toes, and we're doing fine for quite a while. 
So once again, a diversity yep. of descendants. And then once again, one line yep. <laughs> continued to reduce its toes and led to Pliohippus. Oh, I bet we're in the Pliocene now. <laughs> we we are. We're right at the end of the Miocene, end of the Pliocene. And Pliohippus, very similar in appearance to Equus, to modern horses. It did have two long extra toes on the side of the hoof, but probably would have only been visible as, as they said, calloused stubs. Oh, interesting. So probably not hooved, probably not bendy toes outside the body. So effectively... Pretty much a horse. Yeah, functionally single-hoofed, monodactyl, but they were still there. And this one is a meter and a quarter tall. So like, this is now like a four-foot, almost four-foot animal at the shoulder. So this this is... pony sized we're getting bigger we're starting to look like horses by the pliocene and at that miocene pliocene boundary for time comparison this is i mean this is the same time that our earliest hominins are showing up in africa also the age of the gray fossil site where we have a horse cormohiparian another three-toed horse i don't know if i've ever mentioned it on the podcast once again i'd be surprised if i didn't I, I found think you have, yeah. I found 25% of that horse. Oh, yeah. Will, super famous. <laughs> we wouldn't have we wouldn't three have... quarters of the horse we have. We'd have half the teeth of yeah. the horse that we have <laughs> if it weren't for me. I found a single tooth, and it was the scariest day on the dig site I've ever experienced. <laughs> it was terrifying. You were the center of attention. And I hated it. <laughs> Dr. Wallace was right over my shoulder. <laughs> Did you find anything else? No. Yeah, it was awful. So, into the Pliocene, things are cooling down. Things are still drying out. The trends have continued, so it's getting more intense compared to what it was in the early history of horses. And we start to see that have an effect on overall horse diversity. The diversity of three-toed horses starts to dwindle. Okay. And the diversity of one-toed, or the those that are diminishing their toes, are flourishing during this time. So we do start to see three-toed horses start to decline. Okay. After 50 million years of success. Of just doing absolutely fine basically around the world. So it's now at this point that we start to enter an even more cold and dry time. Yep. That finally they aren't doing too well. Dinohippus is one of the most common species of Equidae. In North America during the the later Pliocene. But we get Equus during this time. Equidae and Equus evolve. Equus, about four to four and a half million years ago, uh, is when we see the first members of the genus Equus. Modern genus. Modern horse genus. Yeah. So now we have even more development of that spring foot mechanism. Unpadded, single hoofed. So now we, we have horse hooves. Straighter and longer cheek teeth, that they have become more extreme, just like the ridiculous teeth of horse today. The three clades, or the two to three, the zebras, the donkeys and asses, and the horses, have come have diversified into those three by about three million years ago. Okay. So we see that split in Equus, and you know about that time happened in North America and spread out and diversified to the old world. That's a fascinating fact. Right? Yeah, that's really cool. So by the early Pleistocene, we see them have to have dispersed to the other areas where we know them now. So by the time the Ice Age starts, 
we have horses as we know them, mm-hmm. more or less, in our the foundations of our current diversity. Exactly. The oldest fossils to date go back to three and a half million years ago in Idaho. And, um, yes. And up here, that, that spread to the old world, to the rest of the world, was very fast. Because there is a similarly aged Equus in Europe, uh, Western Europe and Russia. Wow. So they've, as far as we can tell from the fossil record, they evolved here in North America and then booked it around Shoom. the world. So they were doing great. <laughs> they were doing really well. At this point, single-toed horses are the dominant form of horse across the whole world. And for the past couple million years, that is the the image of yeah, the globe. The state of affairs. Yes, is that your typical horse is now single-toed. The three-toads have dwindled, dwindled, and by about a million years ago, we see the last of the three-toed horse lineages go extinct. So, it fairly recently. Yeah, like, that's really interesting to know. That's the thing that I... One of the things I loved most is it's always been shown that they slowly lost their toes and got here today. What it really was is three-toed horses were doing great until basically yesterday. Yeah. And... That then they went extinct, and now all we had left were these weird stilt walkers. So the question is, why did the single horse, single-toed horses survive, while their multi-toed cousins didn't? And they think it is unlikely to be competition that they were outperforming the three-toed individuals because there doesn't seem to be any areas they'd be overlapping for competition. Right. You know, we have smaller forest-dwelling browsers, or at least mid-size, maybe edge of forest type stuff and then we have planeswalkers so where are they going to be competing it seems that it was very much the climate three-toed horses flourished and were doing great in warmer forested environments as things became less forested and colder and drier it was favoring these animals that had specialized in walking efficiently long distances and chewing grass-filled plant uh, glass-filled plants yeah (laughs) that makes sense which means that it was basically luck. The reason horses look the way they do today is because the environment, the climate happened to favor them. So they were not by any means the assumed result. Yeah, they're not the perfect horse. Exactly. They're just the horse that made it. So we now have single-toed horses. They've spread all over. They originate here in North America and by about somewhere around twelve to 8,000 years ago, go extinct here in North America. This is a significant <laughs> moment. So twelve to 8,000 years ago is the end of the Pleistocene. Mm-hmm. Now we're in episode 25. Yes, we are. Right? This is, we lose our mammoths and mastodons. We lose our saber-toothed cats. We lose most of the big Ice Age creatures. This is when horses, after 50 plus million years of most of their evolution here in North America, disappear from North America. Yep. Also, their friends, the Tapers around this time disappear from North America. This is when we lose a lot of our big charismatic mammals here in North America. And horses, it's, you know, a poignant loss because this is where so much of horse evolution occurred. This is their home. They go extinct here, and because of the loss of the Bering Strait by this time, there's no way for them to repopulate back. So we have no horses in North America up until 16th century. Yep. When we humans bring them back. When horses sailed back across the Atlantic Ocean. To reclaim their homeland. <laughs> <I have. laughs> so that's 
that's how we have the Mustangs roaming the the wild Mustangs roaming the fields uh, yeah. and the plains. The same reason we have feral hogs. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we brought them here and then they got out. <laughs> and so the true natural descendants that survived that decline at the end of the Pleistocene are actually in Eurasia. Yeah, Europe, Asia, Africa. Africa. And so the modern wild horses are going to include your wild asses, uh, which are in those areas, the zebras in Africa, and then a few groups of wild horses in the Europe-Asia regions. Yeah. And then around, what, six or 7,000 years ago, if I remember yeah. episode 27? Absolutely, about 6,000. Uh, sure. uh, horse evolution is hijacked. Hijacked aggressively. Yeah. <laughs> when we domesticate them. Yep. Now, the history to horse domestication is ridiculously messy. So about 6,000 years ago in Central Asia is what most of the records agree upon was when we see the earliest domestication of horses. Now, which horse got domesticated? So there are kind of three main species that are pointed at as the most likely culprits. Uh, you have the heavy, cold-blooded uh, breeds, which could have come from the forest horse in northern Europe, or the southern warm-blooded breeds, which are blamed on either the tarpan in eastern Europe and Ukraine, or the Shavalsky horse, you know, which is in Central Asia. Now, the Shavalsky, most of the research I found when I was looking up info, seems to suggest that, no, it looks like they have never been domesticated. Interesting. So it's probably one of the other two, and I came across no definitive answers. <laughs> Most domestication stories are complicated and difficult to assess. Now, we do have some leads. So there... to speak. Yes, exactly. <laughs> one of the big questions that they are trying to answer with this is less about which horse was domesticated and more about did it happen once or multiple times? Uh, because different evidence seems to support either. Uh, so basically did one area domesticate horses and then spread those horses out to other places? Or did multiple, did the act of domestication spread and different populations were domesticated, which were then mixed in together to arrive at domestic horse? According to genetic research, mitochondrial DNA shows a huge amount of diversity among individuals, which seems to suggest multiple uh, domestication events. Yeah, multiple originations. Yes, that there were multiple groups that added their genetic makeup to the domestication of horses. A neat part of this is that it also shows that modern horses can be traced back this way to an ancestral mare, female horse, which lived about 160,000 to 130,000 years ago. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's, uh, the horse's my mitochondrial eve. Boop. Yeah. Because mitochondria comes from the female side, so we can trace that part back. Huh. Uh, other regions do seem to support this. Uh, there are other genetic tests that have shown high diversity, but yet other studies show very conservative amounts of change or of variety in the genetics. Studies on the Y chromosome which comes from the male side, show almost no variation, which seems to suggest very low starting numbers. But it also might indicate how breeders handled mares and stallions, the 
females and the males. Right, right. Because whilst a female can only give birth to so many young, a stallion can impregnate as many females as you allow it to. (laughs) And that means that selection pressures may have been much more on the stallion side. Because if you select for a ideal breeding stallion, it can then breed tons of baby horses. And when we say selection pressures, when we're talking about domestication and artificial selection, it means who the humans are choosing to allow to breed. So this means that what this could indicate is a very small starting stock of stallions. Right. But it still could have been a very diverse group of females. Right. So. Interesting. So, yeah. At this point, we have now domesticated horses, and now we have the Clydesdale and racing horses and and, plow team horses. Really emotional uh, Budweiser commercials. Yes. (laughs) Is it Budweiser with the, the horses? Oh, I think so. I think uh, I think so. With the, sorry, the, beer fans, right? The, the the Super Bowl commercials, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, for for something like twenty twenty five percent of our listeners here in the U.S., we do this thing called the Super Bowl, <laughs> <laughs> and there are these commercials you see with these horses. Yeah, it's like the the it's the commercials that are trying to get an Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's the high caliber Cadillacs of commercials. <laughs> Uh, and you have, everyone has a friend that just watches the Super Bowl for the commercials. Yeah. And I say, well, that's what the internet's for afterward. (laughs) We've gone from dawn to domestication. Yeah. So at this point, now we have these weird, tiptoeing, giant monsters. Majestic creatures. (laughs) Majestic, majestic, horrifying animals. (laughs) With their big bowling ball eyes. One of the few animals that humans successfully because you have to imagine that over the course of human evolution we've been around 300,000 years mm-hmm. how many animals have humans looked at and said i would look so cool riding that across town the phrase i want one has to have been said yes an innumerable amount of times that creature i have tamed this wild beast it will now be my mount (laughs) we've only managed to to pull that off with a few creatures yep and none nearly as successfully as the mighty horse the horse is a living seat yeah it is almost (laughs) inseparable from human history and culture it's and and it's one of those weird cool really interesting ones that dogs are dogs yes but horses are such culturally and economically important that they've impacted our culture and our language in totally different ways well there are whole you know today still but you know famously historical cultures and societies centered around the horse yeah like the dothraki yeah like they are the you know they travel on their horses and if you fall off your horse you are not a warrior right you stick to the coat (laughs) and so like they are hugely important it is probably very safe to say human society would not look like it does today if we had not domesticated horses thanks horses yeah so there's horses there's definitely things we didn't get to there's definitely things that could be mentioned but for now that's a horse there you go thanks for our the suggestion mm-hmm. thanks this for was our... a fun trip down horse evolution it was i it's always fascinating to me and i still I, I love how different it is than how we we were excited when we thought it was one way. 
Like, yes. we were excited about it when we were wrong about it. Now it's even better. Yeah, as I said in the beginning, and is a sentiment that I stick to mm-hmm. invariably, true stuff is always cooler than not true stuff. Yes. But before we wrap out the episode, we have a patron question that we would like to share and to answer. So once again, on our Patreon, if you sign up for a level for us to shout your name, you can also send us a question that we then have to, not shout, but answer. Right. On the podcast. <laughs> and so we have one of those from Michael. What is it? Michael posits, asks, in addition to mutations in DNA during reproduction, can viral DNA inserted into a cell ever result in a benefit to the host organism? Good question. Yeah. So we're talking about mutations occur during reproduction, during exposure to the environment. That provides genetic material, genetic variation Mm -hmm. for natural selection to act upon. But viruses can carry genetic material across lineages. So the way that there are two basic different life cycles of a virus. Mm -hmm. One is the quick and dirty version, which you go in the cell, you hijack the machinery, you make a bunch of baby viruses, and you spread. Yes. The other version is the virus can insert itself into the genetic machinery of the cell so that when the cell divides you're ending up with many many infected cells exactly so it's i'm planting i'm planting this corrupted code it's a sleeper it's a sleeper and i put this code into your genetic material and then it just sits there and waits until the time is right and you make a bunch of cells all on your own and then something can trigger it or it doesn't trigger and then you just have virus in your dna yeah now you're part virus this can happen you know there could be a mutation that happens and now the virus is broken and so it can't be active it's you you reproduce you multiply the cell wrong and screw up part of it or it's just the virus never gets triggered and if this happens in reproductive cells now it's heritable so you can get viral dna incorporated into the genetic evolutionary line of an animal a plant anything the virus infected now, as you might imagine, usually if you're randomly messing with DNA, it's bad. However, that's not what Michael's asking. No. Nope. Michael's asking if that can contribute to evolution. And whew, <laughs> this is a whole podcast, not an episode. No. A podcast. Yes. Do Everybody do yourselves a favor. Look up endogenous retroviruses. <laughs> it has been found that an shockingly large percentage of the human genome is made up of viruses yeah that have gotten in there now a lot of them are non-functional some of them are still functional (laughs) and can become active but there are a handful that have been linked to certain traits that are beneficial yes so in both humans and other animals, I saw an example listed in sheep when I was Googling about it. There are endogenous retroviruses that are understood to protect against certain infections. Ooh. Because this isn't just random DNA inserted. This was this DNA did something in a virus. It was being used for a function. Now you have part of that function. Also, this is really cool. Viruses sort of implanted in... in human genetic lineage have been found to be an important part of placental development. Wow. And not just for humans, like across mammals that have placenta. 
Wow. I've even seen some, uh, this might have been on Wikipedia, where there was a sentence that said, it might even be that viral hitchhiking in, in mammal evolutionary lineages may have been part of the evolution of placental mammals and live-bearing mammals. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, beneficial. Yeah. I've also seen references of human uh, examples where there are virus, there's viral DNA that is an important part of embryologic development and an important part of protecting the embryo from infection. At this point, I'm going to stop for a couple of reasons. One, episode's over. Two, this is not our area of expertise. Now we're in, you know, genetic evolution and viral DNA and... There's a bunch of epigenetics involved in here. Which is... It's super cool. The short answer is, yeah, a ton of animal evolution and probably plant and etc. evolution is influenced by viral DNA jumping across different groups of life. Which makes sense because basically any time random changes are being applied, even if it's... You know, not intentional because virus doesn't think. But even if it's purposeful changes, uh, they're still random to the host. Anytime random changes are being applied at consistent rates, there's the chance for a beneficial mutation, a beneficial uh, alteration to happen. Well, and it's basically what it is, is viruses every now and then just deliver some new material. Exactly. Like, like, here's some more genetics to play around with. mm Mm-hmm. Also, this is how some versions of gene therapy work. Yeah. Is they'll use viruses to deliver new genetic material or a particular gene or trait mm-hmm. or whatever it is into a cell and change the DNA. Because why make nanobots when they already exist? Good question. Excellent question. Very cool. Endogenous retroviruses. And with that, I believe we're at the end of the episode. Sure seems like so it. We're going to wrap it up. We're going to say thanks for listening. Thank you to our requesters. Thanks to our new patrons. If you want us to say more about horses, let us know in all the usual ways. Or any other group of animals or any other topic, as always. We release episodes every fortnight. Sometimes we do bonusy things. Yes. Like we just released a digression about Pokemon. We did, which was a lot of fun. It sure was. We have that Q&A coming up, so keep your eyes out for that extra bit. And I think that's about it. And now we ride off into the sunset. You got two coconuts and you're banging them together. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.